If what's happening with blockchain technology is a compression of transaction costs, making it more efficient to do peer-to-peer -peer exchange, what you'll end up doing is reducing the relevancy of a lot of these third-party intermediaries that have emerged. And so the notion that, that we're heading towards sort of a Bitcoin future where that becomes the global settlement layer for financial transactions is not impossible. Welcome to the Building Cyber Resilience podcast by Resilience. I'm Dr. Ann Irvin, Chief Data Scientist and Vice President of Product Management. And I'm Richard Syerson, Chief Risk Officer. You just heard Eric Hardeen, Cybercrimes Research Lead at Chainalysis, at the top of the show, sharing his vision for how blockchain technology is creating a more efficient market. He entered the cybersecurity space through what he describes as a peculiar route, getting a PhD in political science and international relations, which led to a two-year commission at Canadian think tank GICI. There, his work piqued his interest in the dark web and ransomware. That ended up landing me a tenure-track professorship at Virginia Tech, where I was for five years. And there, I sort of expanded out into broader questions of cyber risk, more about the dark web, um, some about ransomware, things of that sort. And eventually, it all kind of just sort of circled around until, lo and behold, I ended up doing that research at a sort of macro level, focusing on on-chain data for chain analysis. And so that gets me to where I where I am now. And as a part of that role, as I study sort of uh, malicious use of blockchains across the spectrum. So everything from money laundering and fraud through scams, ransomware, darknet markets, hacks and malicious activity of that sort. As an expert in cybercrime trends and forecasting, Eric's perspective lends a fresh take on where the future of blockchain technology is headed. What does blockchain technology have to do with crypto? What about Bitcoin? I think the, the main thing is just that crypto is not just Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not just crypto. And when you're talking about any of this stuff, it's worthwhile to be really specific because ideas may not generalize well. Uh, across actor classes or across blockchains or anything like that. We will get into these specifics that Eric mentions, but first, it's important to understand the structure of this new ecosystem. It's still very much uncharted territory, even for veterans like Victor Fang. Victor is a cybersecurity trailblazer and one of the earliest data scientists to utilize machine learning and big data for advanced threat detection. But we need to understand the cryptography and the consensus layer of all this protocol in, in, in the blockchain. And Bitcoin is only one of the many other blockchains, right? So how about Ethereum? How about Solana? How about those different blockchains? Every blockchain to me is like a highway, right? So you have to understand the structure of it. And that's why I go back to our first point, right? So the domain knowledge. The machine learning theory itself, yeah, it's great. But at the end, you can build a crappy product if you, you, and even you have the best deep learning algorithm and whatever, but you, if you don't have a deep understanding of how cryptography works, how smart contract works, you're not going to build any, any good product in cybersecurity, Web3 or Web2. Victor is the co-founder and CEO of OnChain.ai a leading cybersecurity firm focused on Web 3.0 and an advisor at Berkeley. So, and then, yeah, and then 20, 2018, uh, we see this great opportunity of Web 3 and blockchain and smart contract and all that. There's a big problem in the cybersecurity aspect of it, right? 
And uh, yeah, I quickly raised some of the couple of few million dollars from the VCs here in the Bay Area. And then, uh, yeah, we started the journey in Web3 security. And then it's very fortunate that in the past three, four years, now we already have high profile customers, including the SEC and some of the unicorns in the crypto native industries and all that. With over a decade of experience in this space, I asked Victor to give us some background on how he has seen the industry evolve. So yeah, let's, let's go back to the definition of data scientist, right? It was actually not a very new profession if you think about it, right? It's really coined by DJ Patel, which is also investor of, at Greylock that I actually the luxury to work with, right? So DJ Patel was the guy that coined the word, the profession data scientist and literally I am the first way of data scientists that actually get in and apply machine learning, big data, right, to solve some of the real problem. And I happen to just pick on the uh, the most pressing issues back then, that is cybersecurity. Like Richard just said, right, a lot of those signature-based algorithms is basically like an MD5 lookup and all that, or even for the PGAs or malware binaries and all that. The hacker find a way to bypass those mechanisms. And they kind of they apply some very smart idea of randomly generating domain names like the DGA or polymorphic malware, right? Like every time they copy, they just change a bit and then bypass all the MB5 checksum and all that. So I think, yeah, and then really, there's a lot of machine learning and data science domain knowledge that you need, you require in being a successful cybersecurity data science. I, I would say... If you want to be a, data, a good data scientist in any sectors, healthcare, advertisement, social network, or even cyber and cybersecurity, right? You need to understand the domain knowledge. I don't think that's going to change at all, right? So, yeah, I think a lot of things have changed in terms of um, yeah the tactics that the hackers been using in the cybersecurity, right? Like. DGA, I, I think that now if you're a hacker, right, doing the DGA is probably going to make the job a lot harder because Richard and I have developed some very solid entropy-based algorithm that can detect that. But I'm not saying that they cannot find another hole to get into your enterprise or your cloud or anything, right? So, yeah, it's, this is such an exciting industry that I think cybersecurity is definitely probably the most exciting and innovation-driven industry and data science, you have got to understand machine learning and all that and apply to that and combine these two. We can have a very successful um, problem solver. Eric and Victor have defined some important terms, but as you can see, blockchain technology, Web3, and the data scientists creating cybersecurity tools for it have a complex job. It's still being defined. It's still evolving. So are the risks of financially participating in the blockchain worth the benefits? What kind of security problems and solutions are customers and businesses facing? Is Web3 really decentralized? Whether you're a CISO, entrepreneur, data scientist, or investor, you're probably asking yourselves some, if not all, of these questions. Eric and Victor cover all of these questions and more, and some of their answers may surprise you. Let's dive into the art and science behind crypto security, starting with dissecting the specific layers of the blockchain that Eric mentioned earlier. What tends to happen is everything would get compressed into the word crypto, right. and that evokes a lot. I mean, everything from crypto seeming to invoke cryptography and the math side of things to crypto being cryptic and invoking some sort of dark and shadowy unknown, and it collapses a lot of really important 
differences into a single term that ultimately ends up meaning it can be pretty misleading. And so the way I tend to think about it is you have your what are called like layer one blockchains, such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, things like that. Those are, we will probably don't need to necessarily get into the intricacies of how the blockchain work, but we certainly can. But those are systems on top of which you could build. Or in the case of Bitcoin, you can use Satoshis and Bitcoin as a medium of payment. So you know, functionality varies between these, but there, there's differences between the layer ones and the layer ones are different from some of the things that get built on top of them. So you have on top of Ethereum, for example, which is a layer one, a pretty active sort of layer two ecosystem, web three ecosystem, a variety of things like decentralized exchanges, gambling, lending platforms, all of these sorts of things. And so again, everything, all of that gets collapsed into crypto, but it's really pretty radically different. Then you have things on the sort of traditional finance side that kind of act as bridges like centralized exchanges. So Coinbase and Binance and things like that would be examples. And those are usually like on roads to the blockchain. And so another big picture difference that's useful to bear in mind is sort of encapsulated by the phrase that Bitcoin maximists really like, which is not your keys, not your coins. And what it is essentially saying is if you buy or sell cryptocurrencies via one of these exchange on ramps, but you never leave the exchange, you're not actually taking direct possession of any cryptocurrency. You're getting an IOU issued by the exchange. Where you start to fully participate in the blockchain life, for lack of a better term, is when you transfer your cryptocurrencies into a self-custodial wallet, which you control. So you'd have your own seed phrase and your own password and things like that. And there's a variety of wallet types, and there's a variety that, uh, that vary across blockchains, hardware wallets, paper wallets, software wallets. Eric's description echoes Victor's analogy comparing crypto to a highway. And while the requirements to be a successful data scientist in this new ecosystem haven't changed, the hackers' tactics are evolving to bypass each new cybersecurity tool. And with that new challenge, data scientists are changing the way they solve these security problems. Yeah, I think roughly, right? I mean, the theory itself, like graph algorithm or the NLP or this, um, all this, all this great categories in the machine learning, computer science, right? It's they stay the same, but really, how do you apply those to the real problems and all that? Like for example, now we are in the Web three, right? So pro you probably heard about all these crazy hack recently. Six hundred million dollars at XC Infinity. That's one of the <laughs> largest. I mean. Web3 cybersecurity blockchain hack, right? $600 million. Richard, think about it. That's boom. The hacker took all the money. Now we have a theory that is probably the, the North Korea Lazarus group, right? It's still a theory. I mean, we, we, we guess that's probably them, right? But really, I mean, the hacker has been changing their tactics. They're always finding new holes to get into the parameters, no matter what that is, right? Your attack surface and all that. But um, I mean... The theories stay the same, but the problem, the attack surface and all that, they, it varies a little bit now, right? So, and, and I'm sure this is going to be that pattern. The only thing that's not going to change is the change itself. Victor emphasized how understanding the framework of the ecosystem is critical to building any kind of meaningful cybersecurity solution or tool. But how efficient are those solutions and how big are the problems they target? $600 million is no small loss. Is financially participating in the blockchain worth the risks that come with it? Eric reminds us to zoom out. So predominantly, at least in terms of the bad behavior that we observe, what we're talking about is on-chain behavior. So if, for example, you had 
a sort of a traditional institution that had some blockchain related functions or assets or something like that, if they're running closed order books, we won't see that on chain. It's only when assets would move off of, say, an exchange onto the blockchain that it then becomes transparent. And at that point, we're able to track in near real time or actual real time and historically everything that's happened. So if you download the blockchain, the, the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, you can see all the transactions between wallet and addresses that have happened over time. If you then figure out who's doing what and which are associated with illicit activities of various sorts, you can then sort of plot out a map of entities as they interact with each other, entities as they share and exchange value with one another, and who's doing what. And so we, for example, put out uh, in our crypto crime report, a top line estimate about the share of overall activity that we observe that is illicit. And what we mean there is essentially of all the flows observed on a blockchain in a given year, what proportion of that would we categorize as flows involving illicit activity of some sort? And I like to think about that as, our, as a 1% problem. So you had you know, the numerator shot up and good activity went through the roof. So the share went down even as total illicit activity went up. But it, it sort of hovers around that 1% or less level. So one of the things that's worthwhile to kind of bear in mind when discussing blockchains and illicit activities, like we are talking about a less than 1% problem. So it's not, it's not true to say that all blockchain activity or most blockchain activity is illicit. Most of it's not. Most of it's savings activity, illicit transfers, remittances, things of that sort. Some of it is not that at all. Some of it's very illicit, you know, stolen funds, child sexual exploitation material, ransomware payments and, ex and extortion, that sort of thing. So you don't want to minimize the damage that can be done with a, a payment method of this sort, but it's not a big proportion overall. This is also why it's important to not confuse a blockchain attack with the entirety of Bitcoin. Eric points out that major layers have yet to be compromised, and it is normal to have breaches in any innovative frontier like Web3. In these scenarios, security often gets put on the back burner. The first is it's not incidental that the things that are getting targeted are the ones that have huge capitalization. And so it turns out the malicious actors are following where the money is. That's at a targeting level, basically what we see with cybersecurity generally, especially say in IoT, where you have a, a fast moving first to market advantage where if you generate sufficient network effects, you can kind of lock in your front runner status, at least for the foreseeable future. What that means is things like security tend to get underemphasized or can be underemphasized because what you're doing is saying, let's get to market and then make hope for the best and tinker and try to fix as things potentially emerge. And that's not necessarily an indictment of any given project or anything like that. It's just a general comment about the incentive structure that tends to prevail in the space. And it's the exact same you see in a lot of industries that are sort of tech related. So that's a secondary feature. You may have underemphasis of security relative to what it should be because of these market pressures. And then you have the old uh, human problem. And so for example, um, in the Axie Infinity bridge hack, the Ronin bridge hack, it was someone got a PDF after a LinkedIn solicitation about a job, they opened the PDF. It led to the classic sort of phishing attack. So, you know, so if you think about frequent attacks from like a, 
a, a joint probability standpoint, like you have 0.001% chance of succeeding any given time or the flip side if you're the defender. But if you multiply those time and time again by one another, the odds that you're going to always succeed in defending are pretty low. And then you have these problems of incentives and the problem of classical human error involving the system too. So you do see billions being stolen uh, and that is definitely an unfortunate thing for the ecosystem and for the users and for the developers and so forth. Um, but it's not, it, it, I don't look at it as a system where there's something truly novel in terms of why we're seeing it. It's more like these are things we know drive this kind of behavior generally or this kind of outcome generally. As Eric highlights, the cyber attacks are less about the vulnerabilities of a new ecosystem and more about the reality of human behavior. From a cybersecurity perspective, Victor says there are new ways to solve even evergreen problems. In Web3, access to data isn't an issue since it's open source. However, now Victor says the problem of cybersecurity is more nuanced. But in Web3, in the blockchain world, first of all, all the data is public, it's all open source, right? So I think this is probably one of the, the biggest paradigm shift, I would say, for myself and for this Web3 industry, right? So. But it's, it's a good news for good data scientists because now, well, we don't have to struggle begging Richard to give us access <laughs> to your Active Directory or your, your your firewall packets and all that, right? So yeah, I mean, now the data is available for all of us and really, but it's, it doesn't mean it's making the problem easier because actually, as you know, in this open world, right? The attack surface is different now, right? And then the hacker is again, changing their tactics. For example, give you one of the real problem, right? So we're solving. How do you trace the terrorism, uh, terrorists financing? I'm talking about the Bitcoin payment for ransomware and all that, right? So we have to apply machine learning to all the 600 million addresses in the entire Bitcoin. And then there are 30 different blockchains running out there. You're talking about billions, billions of addresses. And, and they all like, look at the random looking like address and all that, right? But there's a behavior patterns in each of them. And can we apply machine learning graph theory to find out who is behind it, who is the back actor? Can we analyze the connectivities? Can we analyze the temporal behavior in time series to try to paint the pictures to tell you, okay, this is what we believe. This guy, this wallet owner is probably linked to that OFAC sanction database, although they may not be the exact wallet recorded in the US government sanction list database, but we use our machine learning and big data analytic platform. We're able to paint the picture that, hey, this guy, we're gonna rank as a high risk because in the past has those transactions being associated with that. So does it feel like sort of an arms race sometimes between your you know, hunting approaches to, to finding these these hackers and then they're, yeah. you know, they're using crypto scramblers yeah. and all of these new technologies to obfuscate what they're doing. Mixers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, I like uh, two months ago, I was on uh, Yahoo Finance to talk about the most recent crypto mixers, uh, tumblers, right, called Tornado Cash. So that would say that that is the third generation of crypto mixing technology. Mm -hmm. The hacker definitely evolving and learning and some of them are probably as good as uh, me and richard to be honest or, or and right so they i actually at fire mandian i actually had to get on some of the i mean fighting some of the most serious apt group like the apt 32 and those guys i'm telling you some of them probably have a phd as well 
Some of them probably read about our white paper, <laughs> Richard. <laughs> they know how we crack the DGA. So, well, now they're going to come up with a new algorithm to bypass all, all the defense that we built, right? So it's an arm race. It's always a cat and mouse game. And thanks to all these adversaries that we're facing, we are learning. It's an exciting field. And Web3 security is actually also, I mean, it's like, to me, it's more exciting than cybersecurity and cloud security. So is data access the only difference between Web 2 and 3? How do verifiable ownership and a private key work in an open source environment? Victor breaks it down for us. So let's go back to the, the Web definition, right? This internet evolution starts with Web 1, that is read-only. Web 2 is read and write, right? So it's like pasting all this, you're posting the Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, right? <laughs> That's you're writing, you're altering the state in the, in the internet, right? And then the web three is built on top of web two, and by adding a fantastic layer, I mean a, a key feature called a verifiable ownership. Okay, so I think sorry, Google and Amazon and Facebook and all that. Now, right now we're running into a lot of this data privacy issues because as an end user in web two, you don't really own your data. <laughs> you give a the data to the web two platform. They are the monopoly of owning all this data, right? And then they monetize it. I'm fine with, yeah, they they have their business model in web two and that's great, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the end, web three is fundamentally changing how the internet will work, right? So now you own, when you own your private key, for example, like Bitcoin, right? When you own the private key of that Bitcoin wallet address, you own the asset. Okay, and in the Ethereum network, if you own that wallet, you own that smart contract you deploy. You own the data that that created by that, and only you can have to claim the real ownership of that asset, right? And I will say right now, there was a research, uh, there was a report came out yesterday, right, by Andreessen, the ACCD, the one of VC in the Bay Area here. It's called State of Crypto, and I think. One of the takeaway from that report was really Web Web three right now is like 1995 of the internet. If you remember what was it like, right? So we're still in a very early stage of Web three, but we already seeing the problem. The pressing problem we are solving is the cybersecurity aspect of it, right? So, what if the hackers are taking right. advantage of making liquidities on this crypto? Like think about it, like, like Richard, the hacker we deal with in Web two. Think very simple example. Why would they spend so much effort trying to sneak into our enterprise? To do what? To steal the data, right? To steal the data. And then what? Okay. Then the next step, they will monetize it in dark webs or whatever, right? So that's a couple steps down the chain. If you think about all this business model of a hacker. But in Web3, it become a lot more straightforward. This is why we have the rise of ransomware. Ransomware, now there's a, a thing called Rust. Ransomware as a service. Have you guys heard about that? Basically, you dial it, you buy it, you weaponize it, you really put your wallet address and boom, launch it as a service, right? And then you start harvesting the Bitcoins and then you you sell it. So you don't, it's, it's actually, you shorten. The hackers actually find out, find this new monetizing, <laughs> monetizing mechanism a lot more efficient than the web tool world that you have, oh, the APT struggle to get into the data and then sell it, right? So, and a lot of them, for example, the most recent one, that's $600 million hack of the XC Infinity, that blockchain, right? $600 million, boom, gone. And then now we suspect it's actually being hacked by the North Korea hackers, right? So 
yeah, it's the hackers now they're so obsessed into finding vulnerabilities in the blockchain because the ROI is much higher <laughs> and the, the time, the time to money is actually a lot being being shortened significantly, right? So you have to think about all this economic implications of all this uh, this web three, how is that inclined to the cybersecurity? Well, I, I don't understand. You mean, I, I heard that security went away with crypto. Sorry, I'm being <laughs> ironic. No, uh, man. <laughs> no, there was an MIT technology review that interviewed me like in 20, 2018 or 2018. No, I mean, actually security is the problem of security is actually going to get a lot more critical in Web3. Like, think about it, Web2, you still have a customer service to talk to. Yeah, you, okay, if, if the stuff is not working, let's say the bank, BOA. If BOA messes up, you have a customer service to talk to. But in Web3, no, nothing. Everything is public. Everything is open source. Who are you going to talk to? Not developer will be able to help you because the only... Like I said, the, the verifiable ownership is your private key. If you lost your private key, you lost your access to the data. Who are you going to talk to? This is a very important question that Victor poses. The buzzword around Web3 is decentralization. But is that the reality? It certainly puts the pressure of insurance and responsibility on the user instead of a larger business or monopoly. Eric sees this development as a big opportunity for the individual user experience. I don't know if any, of, any of you have read it. Ronald Coase's old book on why we have firms. And he was an economist. He won a Nobel Prize for the asking the question, if markets are efficient, why would you see firms, which are hierarchical, emerge into that environment? And it basically boiled down to what he defined as transaction costs. And mm -hmm. he was basically saying, because of transaction costs, because constantly facilitating peer-to-peer -peer exchange is really expensive, you end up with uh, firms which act as monopolies, they internalize costs, they give people salaries and so on and so forth. And then they're able to do some heavy lifting and long-term planning that facilitates economic exchange. So that it's a way to reconcile the emergence of firms and the efficiency of markets. And when you think about what blockchain would be doing, it's basically taking that core intuition and saying, let's say it's true. And then if what's happening with blockchain technology is a compression of transaction costs, making it more efficient to do peer peer exchange, what you'll end up doing is reducing the relevancy of a lot of these third party intermediaries that have emerged in, as a way to kind of absorb transaction costs with a higher degree of efficiency. So that's the ideal, I think, is sort of this notion that we can edge towards efficiency through market structures by eliminating unneeded intermediaries. And you see it, especially on the currency front with, with tokens like Bitcoin, where the thing is cross-border transactions become immensely efficient. You can move trillions um, without any third party or counterparty risk. Do so securely, it would take you like 30 minutes to get enough block confirmations on top of it to make it all pretty well unalterable. And so the notion that, that we're heading towards sort of a Bitcoin future where that becomes the global settlement layer for financial transactions is not impossible. Although Eric predicts that Web3 might become the chosen model for global transactions, Victor emphasizes that Web2 isn't going anywhere anytime soon. All this technology will coexist, right? It's not like, oh, we're going to swap out Web2 into Web3, right? But it's going to, it's, 
the way I'm thinking about it is we're adding a new area for innovation, for fintech, for cybersecurity, for creator to to make more money you by selling NFT or music. I mean, Richard, if you want, you can sell your music into NFT. You can add a new revenue stream. You never know, right? So I think this is actually what what Joe Biden's uh, most recent the executive order on the cybersecurity securities and uh, the cryptocurrency security that published in just two months ago, right? So the, the, I'm glad that the White House now the first time defined this as the national competitiveness of the United States, right? So this is just the beginning of a new chapter. It's it's going to enable a whole new way of doing diff- things differently. Like for example, if you're a creator, if you're a musician, if you're an artist. You have a new way of monetizing your work, right? You have a, a different way of engaging with your community, right? It's that is what I think. And then, Enchain AI is a, still a small company, right? So we are focusing on how can we help you secure your business. First of all, if you write smart contract, we can have, make sure that your smart contract is secure. And if you're dealing with crypto payments and all that, we can make sure that you're not taking money from a terrorist. I think this is the, but all we're doing right now, like that, like that report, right? That uh, ACCMZ report, it's really, we are the 1995 of the internet in the Web3 world, which is also presenting a huge opportunity and a really a different mindset of doing cybersecurity and data science. And I guess we've talked about this a little bit already, but is this going to make security orders of magnitude more difficult? Uh, because in some ways, centralization of of sort of the internet platform yeah. is helpful. You know, we only we have to secure Bank of America, too big to fail. Yeah. We have to make sure their infrastructure is airtight. But you know, as we decentralize yeah. more more platforms and more resources, is, does that make security just enormously harder? I think yeah. Right now, it's very hard. I mean, Web three adoption is not. I don't think it's ready for prime time yet. It's really because of all these pressing issues in the security layer, right? If you make millions of dollars selling your riches, music, NFTs, and whatever, and boom, the next day you wake up, oh, it's gone. And you don't even know who to talk to. <laughs> that is a big problem. It's, that is, I think, to me, to us, that is the only thing that is impacting the Web3 adoption. Yeah. And that's why my team is feeling a strong mission statement here, right? That's why we call ourselves the guardians of the Web3 digital assets. And I believe this, there's a technology solution to it. We can fix it. While Victor's company's mission is to guard digital assets in a decentralized environment, Eric sees the idea of decentralization in a different light. In fact, he wonders if decentralization is even the correct term. Right. And it's um, like so many things. It's decentralization needs to be defined and it will vary because some, even among the blockchains, some are centralized enough that they can be shut down uh, for a restart or something like that. And others are so so decentralized that you can't kill it even with state bans. I think in many instances, and if you get into the hardware level, or the, I shouldn't say the hardware level, but the server level of things, like where are your servers? If it's all Amazon Web Service or something like that, then yeah, there's, I mean, they, all, they have built into that their own redundancies and um, degrees of decentralization if they're running multiple data centers across various jurisdictions and elements of the power grid and stuff like that. But this is one of those things we saw with something like um, the 
DDoS attack on Dyn, where you know all of a sudden it turned out that there was a centralized point that, at least for the Eastern Seaboard, was pretty easy to target, relatively speaking. And so there's a, there's definitely a case to be made for the idea that what decentralization means needs to be very specifically defined. But who is going to define it? Victor believes part of the solution to clear definitions around decentralization and these layers must stem from government regulation. We are very fortunate to be working with the U.S. government, right, including the SEC, right? I think I'm very happy to see that our government is taking a technology-focused approach to how to, for example, regulate the DeFi, for example, right, decentralized finance and all that, right? So I think at the end, it's a technology is neutral to me, to us, right? The industry needs more, a little bit more regulations to at least guide the private sectors or the, or the financial institutions how to deal with cryptocurrency and the Web3 and all that, right? We need that. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, I don't I don't think it's, we'll call it slowing down because, I mean, look, you need those regulations. You need those framework to show you what is the right thing to do. Cybersecurity is also a technology focus technology centric industry because i mean look if you don't have the best detection malware detection algorithm it doesn't matter and how do you get better you invest in machine learning investing data science in big data analytics you apply graph theory you apply time series to detect it it's a very technology centric industry a stronger framework could come from the sec working with the private sector to provide more clarity and structure to web theory but it's no small task. Eric breaks down just how complicated the layers become as each country regulates exchanges according to their own set of rules. So let's take, for example, layer ones. You have in, in the US context, you have the, the Howey Act, or sorry, the Howey Test. And the Howey Test determines whether or not something's a commodity or a security. And uh, the SEC has sort of long sort of maintained that Bitcoin, for example, is a commodity, not a security. There's no issuer. There's no one. There's no organizational structure there. It is decentralized at that level. And Satoshi creating it and then disappearing helps to facilitate that determination. In contrast, uh, Ripple or XRP is uh, in a legal dispute at the moment with the SEC over whether or not it's a security or a token and therefore part of, uh, part of the commodity ecosystem. So you have a lot of granularity, even at that initial determination level, that still needs to get kind of worked out because um, you had uh, a few years ago, a lot of uh, ICOs or initial coin offerings, which were distributing tokens. But if those tokens turn out to actually be from a regulatory standpoint securities, then a, a different set of rules apply. What the implications are for the issuers and for the exchanges that list them and all these sorts of things are pretty um intricate. So there's a lot hanging on how we sort of resolve all of this. And that's just one jurisdiction. And then you've got obviously all the other jurisdictions that are doing their own sets of regulations. Then in, on top of that, you have, you know, you have your, your quasi traditional um, financial services, things like exchanges, which are this classic on ramp. And there you've got uh, to think through how are these exchanges regulated in terms of the things that the exchanges can do themselves. So is, are there rules, for example, governing what tokens can be listed? 
And I believe Japan has fairly stringent rules in that respect as one example. Additionally, because of the anonymity or pseudo-anonymity, I should say, of blockchain technology, once you're on chain, the exchanges become a great point from a regulatory standpoint for KYC and AML regulation. And so that's been the fastest thing to kind of roll out in, as, as a, into this sort of regulatory void that was crypto back in the day, where nowadays, if you're using an exchange, you're going to have to supply a, a variety of real world identity measures, license scans, real address, social security number, all these sorts of things. And it's all for the purposes of complying with uh, know your customer KYC rules. Right. Um, and so the that's sort of a set of regulations that have been widely adopted, already implemented and so forth. And you may find some regulatory utility still exists in terms of figuring out what exchanges can and cannot do in terms of product offering and futures markets and these sorts of things. So there's, again, there's like both on-chain related regulations about the tokens and the layers and so forth. There's regulating the uh, financial services or on-ramps. Um, you could think through trying to do regulation at a like a Web3 DeFi type level too. Um, though that, again, it gets really complicated really quickly because you, you also have, you do end up with some degree of decentralization and with something like smart contracts, a degree of um, uh, hands-off determinism that becomes pretty hard to regulate. Um, so if something's up and running, it may not be something that could be just stopped to be a regulation. You can create disincentive to use the service, but you may not be able to stop the service from existing. And that's kind of a, a new and emergent feature for regulators in the space too. I guess bringing it back to illicit behavior on the dark web, like what do you think will help? Is there a way, way to regulate the payments part of that, that will help? Well, I mean, this is where I think exchanges play an inordinately large role because they are by far and away the most common on-ramp and off-ramp for most users. If you think about it bi-directionally, either from an illicit service to an exchange or from an exchange out to an illicit service, once you're on chain, you can sort of track you know, wallet A, transact with wallet B, value flowed in these ways. Um, and if it eventually finds a home in a sanctioned entity or a darknet marketplace or whatever, you can work your way backward and be like, well, it originated from the exchange X. And then if you have the correct legal authority, that is your law enforcement or something like that, it, you can easily sort of say, we've observed this, we'd like to know who initiated this mm -hmm. transfer. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you get real, real identity information. So the exchanges play as I said, an inordinate role in trying to sort of piece together the map of illicit activity and who's doing what. So it's certainly not an impossible feat. Now you have with, as with cybercrime generally, the big problem of, or problems of, big, well, I guess it is one problem, the problem of jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you may find that it all sort of links back to, for example, Garantex, which is a sanctioned Russian exchange. Well, if all of the illicit activity that you're observing links back to that exchange, you've tried to use, or OFAC in this case, has tried to use sanctioning as a tool. And Garantex's response to that was, their public response to that was basically saying, we are not under US jurisdiction, so we don't mm -hmm. necessarily care what OFAC does. And if you're in that setting, you're if you're, let's say, US law enforcement or Canadian law enforcement, you'd be relying on 
mutual legal assistance treaties to try to get Russian authorities to pressure Garantex to give up the identity information if they collected of people who you've observed on chain being involved in illicit activity. So it becomes complicated and confounded by jurisdiction. Sometimes, like in that example, through just you know antagonistic relationships at a political level, sort of bleeding over into these other sorts of things. Sometimes it might just be a definitional antagonism where if you have an exchange in a jurisdiction that doesn't have KYC, then they aren't collecting that information that you would need. So they would be happy to comply, but they can't because they don't, they weren't subject to those rules. So those sorts of things would be at play too. And it's sort of a persistent problem when you have a global technology like the internet or blockchain combined with jurisdictions that are segmented across different countries. While these complications certainly muddy the waters and create significant challenges when it comes to cybersecurity in the crypto space, Eric sees providing protection and transparency to users as an opportunity for insurance companies. I cut right to the chase to get his take on how he sees this playing out. So blockchain and insurance, what are your thoughts? So the way that I would look at it is it becomes, I think, most grounded out in reality with something like ransomware, where, let's say, firms or governments or cities or individuals are targeted, their systems are compromised, encrypted, and then they're given, say, uh, instructions on where to send some cryptocurrency in order to receive the decryption keys. Now, there's a few different ways in which I think in a setting like that one, you could leverage the blockchain to be relevant for something like insurance. First off, there's the pricing point. You have to, in, if you're on the, if you're selling cyber insurance, you have to figure out how do we adequately price risk of something like ransomware in order to provide cyber insurance to clients. And if you're looking in that kind of domain, um, something that's got a high level of transparency with sufficient attribution, so as long as you know these are ransom payments and not some other sort of transfer, is quite a, quite beneficial because it, it could give you a sense of the overtime prevalence, the evolving size of ransomware payments, their distribution, so whether it's a normal distribution, a power law, a log normal, those sorts of things that give you a sense of the scale and scope of what affected clients might actually be looking like can all be highly advantageous. So there's that element which I would sort of categorize as um, informational, and that would percolate through to the insurance industry, I think, quite relevantly. So, so fre frequency and the loss modeling, yep. I mean, the distribution of losses, frequencies, and other things like that. that could yep. go and then a on, a, um, on the other side, I don't know what side of the ledger this would be, but there is an added dimension, which would be the, which would be that first off, there's recoverability to a degree. I wouldn't want to overstress this, but if you pay a ransom, the ransom gets paid to an entity that's observable. That observable entity then tries to move the funds and those funds get tracked. And they ultimately ground out, let's say in an exchange, if that has been brought to the attention of law enforcement, those funds can be seized at that point, frozen and seized. Then they can be through appropriate legal procedure for the given jurisdiction returned to the affected party, which would be a way to minimize loss. And so while you had ransomware before you had crypto, obviously stretching back to the 80s, it never really caught on because the payment method hadn't caught up. Now that it has, ransomware has sort of ballooned, but 
you know, there's certain advantages for the malicious actor, like the ability to get pseudo-anonymous payment from anywhere in the world for attacks. However, on the flip side, there are advantages from either insurance pricing or from law enforcement intervention and remediation. Um, so those are also sort of relevant to factor in because as an additional data point in some sort of actuarial model, it's there is a non-zero probability of recovery depending on the actions taken. So that's also sort of a relevant thing for insurers to think about. With these exciting opportunities and challenges on the horizon, both Victor and Eric see it as a critical time for fresh minds to enter the space. And while trade schools and domain training may help increase the number of candidates for jobs, Victor sees the problem being solved less in the learning area and more in the real world training space. But I think the fundam to fundamentally solve the problem is really put all these young professions provide them a real world problem, not just an imaginary problem. There's actually a lot of exciting problems right now in Web 2 and Web 3, especially Web 3. And that biggest talent gap in Web 3 is, is even like more critical because I don't think you can hire anybody really on the job market that can put into the job and start investigating blockchain and all that. Because like I said, you've got to understand the consensus, those algorithms, cryptographies and all that or the, how the EVM works in, in the smart contract. Those are very deep techniques. I mean, without actually getting to the company like us, right, or exchange and all that, you're not going to be able to learn those, right? So, and that's also why my company started the, there's a Udemy course, right, for to, to teach young professionals without any technology requirements, right? You can go in and we teach you what is blockchain. How do you investigate? How do you trace the UTXOs and all that? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's actually doing pretty well. I mean, a lot of these young professionals, they take the they take the took the lecture they on Udemy, and then boom, they got the idea. And well, I think that we feel great, right? Because now we're actually really educating those that are passionate about the Web three or the Web two, the cybersecurity problem, right? To actually give them something very close to the real world. And they they feel great when they when we tell them that, hey, this address you're investigating is the ransomware. That's the wallet by the WannaCry, a lucky. And boom, they, a lot of them, they're so, so motivated. It's important to note that the space is also nowhere near saturated. Eric emphasizes that while there are fluctuations, the trend is generally upward. We're still seeing added adoption, more applications being built, more layer ones trying to be spun up, some of which don't make it, some of which find a niche and succeed. And so I think long-term, there's a, there's a pretty compelling case, I think, for the idea that a lot of financial activity, a lot of non-financial activity as well, may, may find some sort of blockchain-related home. Can I say one thing just yes. to my security friends out there, to, to the sub-CISOs, I mean, the people who are maybe starting their career or mid-career and they're looking for the next thing and they're they maybe thought maybe I should get involved in like crypto security and learn more about that. Here's my answer. Yes, it is not going to go anywhere. And if you're looking for some way to differentiate yourself, which is important as a career person, I want to encourage you to be looking at this space. It's needful too. but obviously look at the evidence. So I just wanted to call that out based on what Eric just said that yep. learn, grow, make more money. Whether you're a seasoned veteran in the cybersecurity space or a hungry new graduate, Victor's advice is clear. Focus on the problem. In the graduate schools or the college, I think that 
usually they do a pretty good job in teaching you the theoretical stuff, right? But really there's a gap there in the domain knowledge. And I think my advice to all these young, young kids is really, I mean, find your passion. And for that small subset that we find cybersecurity super cool, or they constantly trying to hack something, right? So yeah, learn, learn more, dig in to the yeah. domain knowledge. And this is really the secret of our career success. You have to do these two things right. And one of the, another tip I give is really, well, you should focus on the problem. Why the hacker trying to get in the enterprise and all that? Why, why does that matter? Focus on the problem with that, not the other way around. Don't start with meaningful learning or deep learning, LSTM. That's the wrong approach. When you get to, into the real world, understand the problem first. Web3, crypto, the future of these things is definitely not certain. What is certain is that as they progress, cybersecurity in both of those areas and, and other new innovative spaces is absolutely crucial to keep in mind, in, even in the earliest design phases of the technologies. It's dramatic and it's exciting. Why? Because we've seen some big breaches We've even seen what seems to be some Ponzi schemes. But the reality is it's not going anywhere. It's a serious evolution, and it's something that the security industry needs to focus on, as does the insurance industry. So I'm so thankful again to have two people who are really leading the way. So thank you to Eric and Victor for their time, expertise, and valuable insights, and to our production team at Come Alive Creative. And thank you for listening. Follow the Building Cyber Resilience podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. We'll catch you on the next show.